Hello and welcome to On Topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University, Bloomington. Danielle Kilgo is a journalism professor at the Media School. Danielle, thank you for spending a few minutes with us today. Thank you for having me. Among other things that you study, race and gender and visual, digital and social media, and a lot of the national discourse that's taking place right now dovetails with some of your work. One element still to be explored in great extent, I think, are these very large, very powerful events, the George Floyd protests. They're taking place during a pandemic, and that's got to change the dynamic of the demonstrations themselves. Absolutely. I mean, we've never had protests around the country or nation or around the globe that have occurred during a pandemic. And so, you know, when you have hundreds of thousands of people that are crowding together to protest one health issue, racism, um, during another health issue, uh, COVID-19, we definitely have a new dynamic and a new threat for both um, our population and society, for the protesters, and for their cause. And a few places like Georgetown's Center for Global Health Science and Security are now publishing tips for governments and organizers and individuals about how to reduce the risk of COVID-19 infection. There's a brand new Axios Ipsos poll reporting that 8 in 10 worrying about the demonstrations could trigger another wave of infections. And of the survey respondents, I found this interesting, Danielle, 11% have someone in their close network, friends and family taking part. 2% of the respondents themselves say they've marched and demonstrated. And Axios, in publishing that survey, they've done a bit of of back-of-the-envelope math and figuring that this comes out into the millions of people who are in close contact with protesters. As you say, there's two health issues here. It's really a significant emotional and physical, tangible idea, I would think. Right. So so they're saying 80% of people are worried about the protests. Um, spreading or contributing to the spread of COVID. And I think a lot of that is, is the news media that has helped sort of um, spread this idea that it is the protests that, that are going to continue the pandemic. And that's sort of a false narrative that that, that people are, are, are being exposed to on a regular basis and in the current news cycle. However, you know, the, these 80% of people that are worried about these protests, obviously from the statistics, are actually not participating in the protests. And that's what we have with all protests. It's just a, a smaller amount of people that are actually engaged in that protest activity. And it's, and it's really important for people to remember that, that while these protesters, these protests are large, not that many people are out protesting on a regular um, basis. So that's one thing that's important to remember. Um, and then... In addition, you know, a lot of people are, um, when they're out protesting, do have safety precautions and measures. We know that they are outside, first of all, and we know that they are in the sunlight. Two things the CDC and government early off said were helpful in preventing the spread, or at least um, limiting the spread of COVID. So they're outside. They are, um, you know, there's some distance in some of the protests, of course, and they are uh, also at less of a threat in that area, in their space, than they are when they're arrested or when they're um, pushed together in close confines by um, police suppression or by police support. So there are different um, aspects of protest and and the, the different stages of a protest event that are more, that, that create more of a risk than other parts of a protest. 
These protests, of course, sparked by the shocking death in the video of George Floyd in Minnesota, but there's been an organic evolution of the protest, too. It is about one man. It is about many other victims of uh, police brutality. Even in the moment, as we watch some of these uh, disheartening pieces of footage that come to us every day now, the protests also about issues of structural racism that we still have. How do we chart an evolving nature of these many voices and, and the things that they are trying to tell us and the things that they are trying to say? Right. I mean, I guess we go back to 1619. Um, <laughs> um, there, there's a deep history of this. This isn't new. I, I mean, I started studying this in 2012 for the death of Trayvon Martin. And, you know, Trayvon, Trayvon's death was my George Floyd. It was my personal George Floyd and, and an awakening for me to say, to say it needed to be changed and I needed to actively understand the parameters that are preventing progress in our society. Um, so this isn't new, and it is, it's not hard to track <laughs> the trajectory of, of racism and where it, um, it, especially when it comes to taking lives, where it takes lives. You know, our police use of force and police deadly force statistics are very um, apparent now, now that we have started collecting the data. We know that black people are sometimes more likely to be uh, subdued and shot and killed by police than other people. Um, we also know that, you know, Black Americans make up only about 15%, according to 2010 census, about 15% of the population. So, you know, just seven times more likely, it's not, it's not a ratio, it's, <laughs> it, you know, to, to, compared to other people, it's it's really seven times more likely than all the other groups that are there in the United States. And, and that is that is alarming. And, you know, we have clear evidence. It's just really, I think people are having more of a problem still for the state putting parameters and clear definitions and clear um, operationalizations on what racism actually is. Um, and they are, there's still this resistance to want to call something race. There's still this um, uh, want to try to explain away racism with other, by other means. And we see this a lot in commentaries of politicians um, we just saw it when we were talking about African Americans and COVID um, just the other day. An Ohio Senator, Senator Steve Huffman out of Ohio, said that African Americans perhaps they were more like unlikely to or more likely to get COVID because they didn't wash their hands as well as other groups, for example. And you know, there's this way of explaining away racism that happens so casually and so frequently in our political commentary and in our society that you know that really what has to happen is people have to say racism is a thing and then tracking the history of racism and how it has um, affected the black community, the black and brown community over time is quite easy. Since you mentioned history, if you look at the history of protests in this country, it's a safe bet that this isn't a one or now two week movement. Is there a sense of what the next stage of the demonstrations and protests may appear like? I assume that the demonstrations, and I, I mean, these demonstrations aren't unlike other Black Lives Matter demonstrations that we saw, for example, after Ferguson or after Baltimore. Um, I imagine that the, the protests will continue, perhaps not as large at a transnational scale, but I do think that they will continue, and they will continue all the way up until the police officers' trials and their um, ultimate judgments. And depending on what happens there, I think there will still be protests, but there will um, uh, it, it will it will matter greatly what happens in the in the prosecution of the officers and, and the trials of the officers. We will also, I think, see a hyper awareness of 
of police behavior over time. So if these incidents, if another incident happens in between, you know, in between now and then that is, is as visually alarming as those that we've seen before, I think we will, that, that would possibly cause an uptick in between this time between now and the trial. But uh, yeah, I think the protests will continue because racism will continue to be an, an issue, not just when it comes to the police force, but also when it comes to other institutions. All institutions have this sort of ingrained in their in their in their policies and in their guidelines and how they treat people. And so, so the, the fight against racism won't quit. Will the size of the protests and people be in the streets every day, as we've seen for the last two weeks? I don't think that that's what is sustainable, but uh, you know, with more emotionally charged events that happen, that that is what really fuels protests. Fuels protests are fueled by by anger and by um, the emotions that come with not being heard and not having their demands and they're not having grievances heard and not having their demands understood and addressed on a regular basis, which is really the history of racism in the United States. Another part of this as well is something that we can find in the media portrayals, and you just had some research published. Congratulations. The title of a paper, Protest, Media Coverage, and a Hierarchy of Social Struggle. You don't have to explain the entire paper here, but talk a little bit about how the media coverage feeds into what's going on across the nation, across the world right now. Right. So, so that paper really was a comparative analysis of looking at the many protests that we've seen recently, um, and and looking at how how the how mainstream media has covered them differently, um, we've seen especially since 2012 this um, continuous uptick of protest activity around the world. And you know, protests used to be considered unusual political engagement or unusual political action. And now, when we have so many protests that are so large, um, and it's more normal. It's, it's normalizing the idea of what a protest is. Um, so in 2017, where we had so many protests, the, the Women's March, the, um, the Dakota Pipeline protests, we had anti-Trump and the inauguration protests, we had the NFL protests ramping up, um, or the NFL anthem protests that were related to Black Lives Matter, but sort of got blown out of hand and became a national respect issue. And we also had anti-racism protests. We had the Charlottesville protest that year. So the idea of that study was to compare the different um, aspects of these protests and the way that they were covered. Um, and in that, I mean, the, the conclusions of that particular paper were that the press actually, the press is more legitimizing to some protests more than others. And so the press is more um, likely to give the demands and the grievances and the agendas of protests like anti-Trump protests and the Women's March protests. Um, but they are less likely to give these legitimizing features to protests like anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism. And that um, anti-Black racism protest is really where most of my research lies. I, that really confirmed a pattern that I had already established in 2012 and 2014 and 2016 and 2018. Um, in these different, more individual case studies. So as I look at the coverage in 2020, today, um, I see a lot more of the same, the same things, the same um, narratives, the same tropes that are used to describe civil rights protests. Um, 
I see a lot of the same narratives or the, uh, I'm bubbling up to the front pages of newspapers and to the headlines um, broadcast that I've seen before in my previous work. There is a, a massive emphasis on riot. There is a, a large emphasis on arrest. And there is very little police accountability, although this is changing over time as media and journalists are becoming more critiqued than they have been in the past. And of course, it's an entirely different environment. But if we go from mass media to social media portrayals, there are many, many more voices now, many more portrayals, a lot more megaphones shouting at me from a media effects standpoint, from a messaging perspective. There's an awful lot going on there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So social media is kind of a, a it seems like a free for all of sorts. There's there's all kinds of different segmented spaces in which you could find yourself in that would give you a different sort of narrative about what these protests are. Um, and I think that that's, that's, that's what's most important to consider when we think about social media. There's really no way to analyze all of it at the same time and know exactly what the patterns are in different spaces because each person, each user, each community is, is defined by not just how a, a individual shapes it, but also how a media company, an algorithm, Facebook, <laughs> um, creates the patterns that you see and what they want to push forward. Um, so there's so many different um, entities that are changing what our overall media landscape are in these individual worlds that we have, that it's hard to see what the exact patterns are. Um, but we do know um, in among social media audiences is that there, there, there is um, a lot more, or in the public sphere, Social media audiences, especially on Facebook and Twitter, are much more likely to amplify press narratives that include the demands, agendas, and grievances than they are the articles that have riot or confrontation. Um, they, which is actually counterintuitive. Kind of, you know, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads, and a lot of people think that if it bleeds, it also shares. But here, um, what we see is that you know the, the demands and grievances are really the things that are, are most shared in, in, in most cases, which is really interesting because it kind of takes if the idea of if it leads, it leads to a different perspective. We're not talking about the sensationalism or the protest. We're just talking about the sensational and emotional aspects of what started the protest. What was really bleeding was George Floyd, right? And what was really what was really bleeding is the many people that were hurt before by police, hurt or killed before by police. So um, we see that social media audiences have this um, really interesting way of of amplifying those narratives that that are needed to legitimize protesters. So with those two things in mind, how mass media is portraying things, how social media is behaving, what advice would you give to a casual news consumer about how they could get a broader, better representation of these current events into their news diet? Yeah, I think the first thing would be to, you know, to diversify your news sources if you are keen on watching one television program um, to get breaking news. I would turn it to another one every once in a while. Um, when it comes to receiving social media on your phone, it's really hard to change the algorithms that you already have. So um, a lot of times that might mean seeking um, news sources. Um, you know, you see things that you see on social media, but question those things, do research, 
um, if you see an event that's happening in a particular space, there's kind of public other public information um, that you can gather, even if it doesn't show up in your newsfeed. So looking beyond the newsfeed is really important because that's so um, personalized and curated. Uh, and then also, you know, just diversifying your news source, trying to find other perspectives and other sources that can give you just a different set of information. I think it's important for uh, audiences to know that while there is this idea that some media are liberal and some mainstream media are very conservative, when it comes to these anti-racism protests, um, we see that there's not really a, a clear-cut mainstream media outlet that is really good at always um, amplifying, or not even amplifying, but presenting regularly the protesters' demands and grievances. Right? There is not a mainstream media uh, media organization that is constantly presenting the a legitimizing side of protesters. And audiences need to be able to see through that, right? They need to be able to know that the journalists are focusing more on the protesters' actions. When they see a protester engaged in riot, they need to know that there is more to that than just someone got arrested for acting as a, a, a particular way they also um yeah should should also know that everything that they see in a particular article or a particular news broadcast is, is really just a segment of the reality it's a snippet it's mediated so um while i can take the best picture in the world that could cap you know and capture you know an idea of what the night looks like um it's not what the night looks like. You have to have two eyes and a 360 pan and a constant surveillance reality camera <laughs> to be able to to um, to really know what the night looks like. So, it, it, so the media is not capable of giving you every piece of every narrative. And it's really important for audiences to remember that particular aspect. More with Danielle Kilgo in a moment. But first, a word from On Topic with IU's Emily Miles. Thanks, Kenny. I had the privilege of talking with social psychologist Amanda Gesselman, who's the Associate Director for Research at the Kinsey Institute and the Anita Aldrich Endowed Research Scientist. We walk through how the pandemic has affected how we connect and operate in relationships. A lot of the relationships literature shows that good quality relationships or feeling good about your relationship comes from this idea of self-expansion, of um, experiencing new things together. And so if any recommendation, I would say, um, try to find things that you could both be interested in, but that you haven't necessarily done before and try to experience those together. You can hear more of this conversation with Amanda Gesselman in another of our recent episodes of On Topic with IU. Thanks, Emily. Dr. Danielle Kilgo is a journalism professor in the media school at Indiana University. It's been suggested, Danielle, by some pundits that some of the knock-on economic effects of commercial shutdowns and a struggling economy are a driver in the protests currently going on. Do we think that's going to hold up to a closer inspection of cause and effect and why some people are marching right now? Yes. I, yes. So I so you know, these protests have happened for years and years and years. And one of the things that is really interesting about this is how did it get so big now? Like, what makes this difference? And and COVID nineteen and the the shutdowns that have happened around the nation are are really are a key indicator that when we have the time and attention, the time to pay attention to what's going on in our world, we are more likely to be engaged with it. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now um, is that people have been you know 
locked down in their houses. They're, they have time to watch TV um, and they have time to read the news. And they have time to not travel or commute to work. And with that time, they've had more opportunity to really sink into the screens of their lives. And unfortunately, you know, we have seen um, the repetitive um, um, portrayals of, of George Floyd's death on, on television. We've seen, you know, constant 24-7 um, depictions of the protests. And so it's, it's a little, it's slowed things down and given um, people more time to engage with, with the issues that are matter and that are at hand. Um, as things begin to reopen, I think people will, you know, return to work to some degree, and they will um, have less time again, as you know, as we return to whatever our new version of normal is. And the hope I think here is that, you know, as we make this progress in this in this really unique space and time, that people can remember it and 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 continue to engage with it, even though their lives become a bit busier. Protests aim to destroy a norm, but again, as we sit in a growing pandemic, even normal isn't normal right now. It's been suggested by uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci that the protests create the sort of conditions that could bring about more COVID-19 cases. The CDC said they're paying attention to that as well. And it's interesting that and and the knowledge that we have that some of the disproportionately impacted groups of the coronavirus are people of color who make up really for lack of a, a better, more precise amount, a really big portion of the demonstrators we're seeing right now. Right, which is tragic for, for black and brown communities um, around the United States and the world. Um, you know, this, this disproportionate uh, effect on black communities has been um, devastating in many areas and is really a, a another effect of racism in our society and structural racism in our society. So we have you know, racism in our healthcare system that, that has been noted by many scholars. And we have racism that, um, that has changed our economic, that, that influences economics and, and job placement. And so you also have, you know, well, black people are dying, are more likely to die from COVID-19 at, at the moment, as far as statistics imply. Um, we also know they're also more likely to be our essential workers in our grocery stores. They're more likely to um, have, you know, health conditions that are related to the stressors that are created by racism. So, you know, the, the pandemic has disproportionately affected people who have put, been put in constant stressful situations um, because of the way our society is made up. I've seen signs that read racism is a pandemic too, variations on that idea and signage. Uh, it really seems to capture this moment that we're in right now. We're putting a lot on a piece of poster board when we say something like that, racism is a pandemic too. As a message, it's very powerful. But also it speaks, I suppose, to the value judgment that people are, are making, people feel they have to make today. Right. I think I think also it's a, it's a great comparative, right? I, everybody was affected by the pandemic. We, we lost so much. You lost your normal life. You lost, you know, your kid's favorite gym activity. Everybody lost. So much, and and we talked as a nation. I think about this, the sense of grieving that people had to go through when they were forced to stay in their houses, and and they lost their, their everyday lives and what they knew about it. Um, and I was not immune to that. So um, I think I think it's I think it's actually quite timely to say racism is a pandemic, um, even though it is, because 
that is what black people have experienced on a regular basis. They've also had to confine and restrict their lives in order to survive in a racist society. And so it's a a comparison that I think that for the first time, an entire world can feel, right? So, So an entire world knows what a pandemic feels like now because we're living in it. Um, and not everybody knew what it felt like to be black in the United States. Not everybody knew what it felt like to be confined and restricted um, to a specific space, uh, whether that was legally bound or just, you know, societally known. And so um, I think that the that the comparison there, it, it does, it says so much. Um, and, it, and it breathes so much light into what racism does and how racism affects the black community every day and not just the black community, but black people every day, because you can't merit your way out of a pandemic, not a racism pandemic or a health pandemic. And so um, uh, there, there is, it's a very loaded and very powerful way of skating the comparison between um, what this virus COVID-19 um, has done to our society and what racism has done to communities for centuries. Dr. Danielle Kilgo is a journalism professor in the Media School at Indiana University, Bloomington. Danielle, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. Search the hashtag In This Together to stay up to date on the broader statewide campaign as well. And you can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. For On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.